Welcome back to another episode of Mi Valle Mi Vida. We are your hosts. I am Juan Carmona. And I am Mariana Luna. We really appreciate you taking some time out of your day to give us a listen. Feel free to leave comments or show ideas. You can find our email on our website, mivayamivida.com, or you can leave comments or ratings on whatever platform you might be listening to us in. We would love to hear from you. It is that time of year which students look forward to and parents do not. Spring break. However, like all things this year, spring break may or may not look different this year. And we will discuss this further in our episode. But for now, let's look at spring break pre-COVID. The years of craziness, concerts, crowded beaches, alcohol, meeting new people from all over the country. South Padre Island has grown to be one of the places to be for college students and local high school students during spring break. How did this come to be? In our first part of our podcast, we'll examine the history of South Padre Island and its evolution to being one of the spring break meccas in the United States. The concept of the celebration during the spring can actually be traced to ancient Greece, to the Greek god Dionysus, god of wine and cheer. Dionysus died every winter and came back to life every spring, with which he came a celebration of life and revelry. His persona was adopted by the Romans and he was renamed Bacchus, and the banquets and orgies held in his honor got so bad that they were eventually outlawed by the Romans. Seems like times really haven't changed much from ancient times. When it comes to the Rio Grande Valley and spring break, we immediately think South Padre Island. According to the city's website, South Padre Island was a beautiful, desolate place where native Karankawa Indians, migratory birds, and sea turtles were the only residents. The island was granted to Nicolás Bailly from King Carlos III of Spain in 1759, and later passed to Bailly's grandson, Padre José Nicolás Bailly. Soon after, Padre José brought the first permanent settlers, establishing a church and teaching Christianity to the Karakawa Indians. When Padre Baez owned the island, it was known as the Isla de Santiago. Due to the Padre's reputation as a kind man, the people to whom he ministered affectionately referred to the island as La Isla Padre or Padre, Padre Island. One of the most striking features and the source of consternation due to the traffic on holidays and weekends is the Queen Isabella Causeway. An idea for the causeway had been floated around since the late 1920s. However, funding for the commencement of construction of the island's first swing bridge began in the year 1950. During construction on July 7, 1953, a barge rammed into one of the pylons of the bridge, bringing down two pylons, foreshadowing a much more tragic event in 2001. November 14, 1954, the bridge was open for traffic. However, it was struck again by a barge and damages sustained by Hurricane Beulah, the idea of a new, more expansive bridge was drawn up in 1969. The Queen Isabella Causeway would open for traffic in 1974. Hey, that was the year I was born. And in time, it has been struck by several barges and hit by an airplane in 1996. But none of those accidents compared to what happened on September 15, 2001. That tragic night, a barge hit one of the pillars holding up the bridge, causing an over 200-foot piece of causeway to collapse into the Laguna Madre resulting in nine cars falling into the water and killing eight people. For more information on this tragic day, give a listen to Mr. Joshua Morales' podcast on the historic event. We will be linking it to our website and our Facebook page with this episode. Moving away from that tragic day, the history of spring break on the island has a part of its origin in the Easter holiday. In the 1960s, Fort Lauderdale, Florida was a place to be when it came to spring break. Nonetheless, teenagers who came home back home to the valley from their various universities and local colleges and high school students that could not afford a Fort Lauderdale vacation began gathering at the island instead. A practice that began on Easter break soon stretched into spring break. The early hangout used to be at the Sandy Treat Retreat Hotel, where students would gather and in time bands started to set up 
and then the road was even closed to traffic so that the party would be expanded. In time, Friends of Friends began to invite students from all over the country to South Padre Island, and this gradually evolved into the spring break we see today. Another aspect that attracted teenagers from across the country to South Padre Island is its proximity to Mexico, specifically Matamoros. For those listening to this podcast who are residents of the RGV, you know exactly what I'm alluding to, and that is the easy access to alcohol. Whereas you could certainly obtain a beer or a drink in the vast number of parties occurring in many hotel rooms and condos on the island, not to mention from someone on the beach. If you're under 21 and wanted to experience a club or a bar unrestricted, Mexico was the place to go. Not to mention that traveling to Mexico was also an experience that many spring breakers wanted to enjoy while they were in South Texas. One interesting aspect about Matamoros during spring break, at least in the 80s and early 90s, I cannot speak to today, it has been a long time since I experienced a spring break, was how businesses would pop up just to make money during the weeks of spring break and then shutter until the next one. I remember going while I was in college and some friends took me down to the strip in the city of bars and clubs all lit up for the night, hopping from one to another. Then a few weeks later, long after spring break, we went back to this whole, and this whole section was just dark buildings. I was surprised and later it was explained to me that many of the merchants simply opened to make money off spring breakers and then shut down until the next season, having made a healthy profit during the month of March. Now, if we're going to talk about spring break in the Rio Grande Valley and add the city of Matamoros, we would be remiss in not talking about an infamous episode in Valley history, and that is the events surrounding Mark Kilroy, the spring of 1989. For those of you of a certain age, like me, we all remember the story. But for those of you who are younger and have never heard the name Mark Kilroy, sit back and give this infamous story a listen. The night of March 13, 1989, Mark Kilroy, 21-year-old student from the University of Texas at Austin, along with three other friends, parked their car on the U.S. side of the border and made their way across the U.S.-Mexico International Bridge from Brownsville to Matamoros, on foot for a night of fun. They made their way onto a popular strip known as Calle Obregón. After hitting a few bars, Mark took some time to talk to a girl he knew at the bar. His friends let him spend some time with her, and eventually he said goodbye to her and joined his friends to make their way back across the bridge. As they were approaching the bridge, one of Kilroy's friends, Huddleston, ran off to find a place to urinate, leaving the, the group momentarily. He saw a Mexican man in the truck motioning to Mark, saying something to the effect, Didn't I just see you somewhere? When Huddleston made it back to the group, Mark was no longer with them. They saw him talking to the man in the truck and then lost track of him. They eventually assumed that he may have probably run ahead to get to the car, and so they went on and crossed back to the United States. When they arrived at the car, Mark was nowhere to be found. They assumed that he may have gotten a ride with someone back to the hotel, and so they headed back themselves. The next morning, he was still missing, and they made the decision to call Mark's parents and report him missing to the authorities. At first, the search was cursory, thinking he would turn up after a bit. Perhaps he had run off with another group of friends. However, it quickly escalated and grew into something more serious. Mark's uncle worked for the U.S. Customs Office, and fairly quickly, the U.S. Council in Matamoros, Donald Wells, was brought in to facilitate cooperation between U.S. and Mexican authorities in their search for Mark Kilroy. James and Helen Kilroy, Mark's parents, flew into Brownsville to do what they could to help find their son. To that end, over 20,000 leaflets were handed out and an award of $15,000 was even offered. The Kilroys received support from the Texas Attorney General and even Governor William Clements traveled down to offer his support. Authorities on both sides of the borders were searching hospitals and jails, but all was to no avail. What had, had happened to Mark? The answer to that question came from a totally separate investigation. As part of a massive drug interdiction be- program between U.S. and Mexico, A man by the name of Elio Hernández Rivera 
was arrested at a police roadblock for the possession of marijuana. Rivera, under interrogation by the Federales, provided law enforcement with several other names of drug dealers. He then went on to reveal that his family owned a ranch, the Santa Elena Ranch, 20 miles west of Matamoros, in which there were drugs being kept there. Police knew this area was a popular spot for drug dealers, and on April 11th, they had him lead them to the ranch. What probably should have set off the police is the extremely calm and matter-of-fact demeanor Rivera carried himself with as he spoke to them and led them to the ranch. In Rivera's mind, he possessed absolute certainty that nothing bad would befall him. When they arrived at the ranch, they were immediately taken to where there was 75 pounds of marijuana, which they fully expected to discover, and at that point, things were fairly routine. Until... As part of what became a routine practice since Mark Kilroy's disappearance, they showed the caretaker of the ranch a photo of Mark and asked if he had seen him, and much to their surprise, his answer was yes, and he pointed to a small shack. As the Federales got closer and closer to the shack, they were hit with the smell of decomposing flesh. In a field close by was a series of wire coat hangers that had been twisted straight, so they stuck straight out of the ground. These were grave markers. Underneath lay the remains of twelve bodies, all male, one of which was Mark Kilroy. The bodies showed signs that they had been they had died through a variety of methods of being from being shot, stabbed, strangled, hung. However, what was done to the bodies was even more revealing of what the Federales had stumbled into, and why even the caretaker did not seem the least bit nervous as he showed them around the ranch to the bodies. The bodies had been desecrated and mutilated. One was beheaded, others were missing penises, hearts, eyes, ears, testicles had been removed. In the shack nearby, which had been pointed out to them, the Federales found signs of some sort of cult ritual with pots and bowls with dried blood and body parts. Additionally, the room was filled with candles and liquor bottles and an iron bed along with machetes and hammers. This is more than simple drug-related violence. This was so much more. What these law enforcement officers had stumbled into was a cult that followed the practice of Palo Mayombe. In the traditions of Palo Mayombe, author Neil Giardino describes the religion as an ancient diaspora religion brought to Cuba by Congolese slaves. From Cuba, it was then spread out to the Caribbean, to the Dominican Republic, Colombia, Venezuela, and later to the U.S. Its dark rituals involving human and animal remains and even grave robbing is practiced in extreme secrecy. Like another Afro-Caribbean religion, Santeria, thousands of Latino New Yorkers are adherents to this syncretic faith which involves ritual dance, song, and drumming. Baleros are priests that lead ceremonies in which they are in contact with spirits of both ancestral and of the natural world. Worship for Paleto centers on communication with these deities using iron or clay pots called nagangas. The naganga is to a paleto what an altar is to a Catholic priest. Palo means stick in Spanish, and that's what goes into the pot along with earth and bones. But that's not all that goes into a naganga. Animal blood and body parts can be placed in these bowls, and in extreme cases, like what was occurring at the Santa Elena Ranch, human blood and body parts. The head of the cult which Mark Kilroy encountered was a man named Adolfo Constanzo, who along with Sarah Adrete, who was actually a college student herself in Texas Southmost College, led the group in rituals and were part of a larger drug cartel. Constanzo promised the cartel that through the use of his powers, they would have protection from law enforcement, that their drugs would not be discovered as they crossed into the United States, and he even said he could bless them to the extent that bullets would not harm them. 
This is why Elio and those found at the ranch felt themselves protected and unafraid of what they had done. At one point after the arrest, Elio even challenged law enforcement officers to shoot him and he would come to no harm. Constanzo believed that human sacrifices offered him greater power than animal sacrifices, and so he began to ask the cult to bring humans to sacrifice, with which they complied. Then Constanzo asked for a white victim, and sadly, this was the role which Mark Kilroy would play. The manhunt for Constanzo, Aldrete, and other members of the cult took police to Cuauhtémoc, Mexico City. There, with police closing in, and like a scene from a gangster movie, Constanzo opened fire at police and bystanders. And when he was out of ammunition, he asked cult member Alvaro de, de Leon Valdez to shoot him before police entered the building they were in. Sarah Aldrete and, other and others were arrested, and she immediately denied any involvement in the murder. Shortly after her arrest, a teary-eyed Aldrete said she did not know the cult was like this and that she was sorry. She was sentenced to 62 years in prison for her involvement in the cult and the murders. Kiroi's parents found solace in the fact that their son's murder brought an end to the cult and the murders that they were committing. I was in high school when this all went down, and it was such a crazy, shocking story, and it became something parents would bring up around spring break to warn their children of the dangers of spring break. Around the same time of the murder, a film was released called The Believers, which was centered around a similar cult, and it was immediately banned from viewing in the valley. It was not for years that I was finally able to see it. Speaking of movies, there is a film called Borderland, which was loosely based on the incident. In fact, the director of the film states that the story had remained with him because he too was a spring breaker in 1989. He and a group of friends were, were traveling in a van and stopped in New Orleans and purchased some voodoo paraphernalia and decorated their van with it. Then decided to drive across the border in South Texas. When border guards saw the voodoo items, they immediately removed them from the vehicle for questioning. In time, he heard the story and realized why they had been reacted that way, and the seeds were planted for the film that would eventually be. When I first heard about Mark Kilroy and what happened to him, I think it was from my dad. He told me just the basics. Mark was kidnapped and killed by a cartel that was doing some spooky things, and that he was a spring breaker. When I first heard about it, I was intrigued. That is something that you do not hear every day. It's really a very once-in-a-lifetime kind of thing to hear about. I never really did my own research on it, though, and I really didn't think much of it other than that is so strange and I feel bad that he had to go through that. And then I had to write a paper for your class on Mark Kilroy as a research paper in world history. It's actually one of the first papers that I realized I really like doing research like this and then it just continued from there. So while doing that research I found out all the details we mentioned about the Palo Mayombe and the other less than comfortable details. I was absolutely floored honestly. I didn't know that it was that gruesome. Definitely more details than what my dad had told me. But even though this happened here in the valley and in Mexico, I just want to remind everyone that the valley and the borderlands of Mexico are not usually like this. Like I said, this is a once-in-a-lifetime kind of thing. I believe that every place has their own dark history. To Mark Kilroy and all the other victims, may you rest in peace. So even though this is a pretty scary and dark, this is still our history. We hope you enjoyed learning about a very dark chapter in valley history, and we hope you share with anyone who may not know this tale. So with that said... Please be safe on spring break because there is another very dangerous and very easy thing to come across, COVID. Please mask up, wash your hands, social distance, but also enjoy some downtime too. 
Yes, please do protect yourselves. On a side note, as some of you out there may know, I teach Mexican-American studies for dual enrollment, and every year I have my students complete some sort of local history project. We have done presentations and historical performances in our community. This year, due to COVID, I had my students research and create a podcast about a local tragedy, the Alamo train crash of 1940. On March 14, 1940, at the intersection of Highway 83 and Tower Road, a train smashed into a work truck filled with over 40 farm workers, killing 34. We present this story and its aftermath in four short episodes. If you want to learn another about another chapter in Valley history and support the work of my students, give it a listen. You can find it on Anchor and Spotify, and there, is a, there will be a link on our website. It is titled The Alamo Train Crash of 1940. Till next time, we, we love, love you, RGV. RGV.